Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to John chapter 12. And as you're turning there, I would like to invite you and welcome you all to one of the most exciting weeks that we have ever had around this place. See, from combining together this morning to uh, our worship concert tonight, to all the Tuesday and midweek studies, to the Good Friday service, uh, and then our Easter services a week from today, a, a lot is going on, and, and we as a ministry team have been intentionally building to this week. We've been kind of psyching ourselves up for it because it's through these awesome opportunities afforded to us that we get a chance to share the good news of Jesus Christ to more people than at any other time of the year. And so there is, there's great potential in this week. There's great anticipation. We're excited, but as always with great potential, there's also great temptation. You see, we could, as Christ's body, enjoy the goodness of God and glorify Him with all we do this week. We could be brought into a much deeper, much closer, and more meaningful walk with Christ. We could see lives transformed and souls saved and eternities altered all to the glory of God. Or, in the midst of the work and the services and the demands of life, we could put ourselves on display. We could give ourselves or our preferences or schedules or our wants on the stage. We could be more worried about what I want or desire than what is happening in the kingdom of God. And, even, and if so, even in the midst of such a week as this one, we would create division. We would block and dampen the flow of the Spirit and not see Christ's kingdom spread, at least not through this place. And so for a while now, and in great intensity for the last month, we, we've been asking God to, to sort of put his finger on the idolatry in our lives. To expose and call out and yes, even crucify the standing of those things that, that we value more than following and glorifying Christ. And so this morning to conclude our journey through John 12, we have just one goal today and that's it. The goal is that, is that God would make us a people in a church whose only aim is to lift up Jesus Christ. That he would start in me and he would start in the leadership of this place and his spirit would move to the lay leaders and all the way through to every single person in this body and make us people who give Jesus his rightful place on the throne. And to give focus to that call, I want to invite you all to look at John 12 once more and today we get to see from Christ himself sort of his heart and his purpose and his work and what promises flow from that. Because for the last month, we've worked really hard at asking God to, to expose the things in our lives that we have a tendency to worship above Christ. But what we have yet to do is answer this question. Why does Jesus deserve the one throne in my heart? Why does he deserve it? See, it's clear that he demands it. It's clear that that's what he calls for out of us. It's clear that he says that he alone should be there. But we haven't yet told you why he's earned it. Why it's actually rightfully his. Why not only should nothing else be the object of your worship, nothing else deserves to be. So today and, and, on, and tonight and on Good Friday and on our Easter services next week, our goal is to make that clear. We want to lift up Christ. We want to lift up his cross. We want to lift up his death and lift up his resurrection and make it abundantly clear that there is nothing else like him. There is nothing above him, that everything is below him, and that he alone is worthy of my life and my praise and my worship and my everything because that's what he demands out of me. So last, last week, a week early, we, we looked at the story of Palm Sunday and John 12. And, I, and I'm glad that we did it a week early. 
Because what we discovered from the scriptures was that those, those crowds who rushed out and lined the streets of Jerusalem to meet and praise Jesus, why, why their praise and worship was actually inauthentic and fraudulent. Because just five days later, when, when Jesus' plan differed from their plans for him, why they turned their backs on him and rejected him. I'm glad that we looked at it a week early because maybe, maybe God can do a work in us today. Maybe on this Palm Sunday, in this place, Jesus can be welcomed and praised and worshipped as the King of kings and Lord of lords that he rightfully is. And so, in John 12, later in verse 20, uh, which we're going to look at today, we, we're introduced to a new group. John tells us in verse 20 that there were some, some Greeks in Jerusalem, all right? These are Gentiles, non-Jewish folks. They too had come for the Passover. So though they were not of Jewish descent, they'd come to worship the Lord. And, and so they were in the city uh, when that, that incredible scene took place and the entire city was stirred by Jesus' triumphal entry and you can bet that they noticed the scene and they went to observe it. And as Gentiles, as non-Jews, they were curious because clearly everybody was excited but due to their misunderstanding of Messiah, everyone was calling Jesus the King of the Jews. So they kept calling him and so these Gentiles go to Philip, John tells us, one of Peter's, one of Jesus' disciples and they asked to meet Jesus and what they want, they want to check him out. They want to see what Jesus can do for them. They want to know is, as a non-Jew, can he be my king too? So Philip and Andrew go and tell Jesus this. And, and in verse 23 of John chapter 12, look there. We're going to find Jesus' response. Jesus replied in verse 23. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Jesus' opening line of his response to these Greeks, these non-Jews looking after him is this. He says, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. Now, if you read John's gospel throughout it, he makes it clear, he makes it evident as he writes his book that throughout the entire thing, there is one person who's in control. There is one who is in authority. There is one who is calling the shots, and that is Jesus. And Jesus is now looking out this crowd that's gathered before him and letting them know the time has come. Now, I've put on quite a show to this point, sure. You know, I've trained and I've invested in those who are going to carry my name beyond this. I've, I've told you who I am. I've told you what I expect from my followers. I've, I've taught you things that will literally change the foundation of every civilization and government that will be established from this time forth. My brief time here will have a profound impact on art and literature and music, politics, science, philosophy, creativity. I have revealed to you God, but now you see. That was just a warm-up. Now is the time for me to enter into my glory. Now is the time for me to show you all of the real, the overarching reason that I came in the first place. And to clue you in on what that is, I'm going to give you an analogy of a kernel of wheat. So take a kernel of wheat, Jesus says, and let it breathe. Let it stay alive. Let it stay above the surface. Let it experience life. And that thing will produce for you nothing. But if you take that same kernel and you bury it and you kill it, that death will produce many new kernels and a plentiful harvest of, of many new lives. Don't miss what he's saying there. See, we're introduced to Jesus at the very beginning of John, and this is what we're told about him, that, that Jesus is timeless. 
that he has existed forever, that he was with God in the beginning and that he is God, that everything was created, was created through him, and that Jesus has given life to everything that's been created. And in John 1, 14, we're told that that God, that Jesus, became human and took on flesh and came and made his living among mere mortals, which begs the question, why would God come to earth? I mean, he's put on a good show, sure, but that doesn't explain God becoming a human. And Jesus is saying in John 12, I know it doesn't make sense at this moment, but I have not yet completed my mission. And so he's telling them the master plan, the reason I came, Jesus says, is simple. I came to die. I came to die so that through my death, you might have life. Because Jesus is both the origin and the fulfillment of life. We are given physical life, John tells us in chapter 1, because Jesus grants it to us. He breathes his life into us when we are created. But through our sin and through our rebellion and through our selfishness and, and evil and pride, spiritually we are dead. We are simply existing physically, but we have no real life because it is limited and short and it will not continue beyond the grave. And so in his rich and unfailing love, the God who created us um, became one of us to offer eternal, lasting, fulfilling life. He, keep, he became one of us so that he could die in order to keep us from experiencing eternal death. Jesus is saying, my glory, do you understand my glory, is that I am that kernel of wheat. Kill me, bear me, and for a while it will look like I am dead and it is over, but don't you be fooled because from that death will come life, starting with me and then continuing to a plentiful harvest of new lives to come. And it hasn't stopped yet. It continues to this day. But you see, we must realize one other thing. Yes, Jesus was in control. Yes, he knew exactly when and where and why he must die. He got the big picture. He, he understood the program. He could see beyond the cross to the new harvest. But in no way, you see, in no way did those lessen the things that he went through. In no way does that lessen what he endured. Look at what he says in verse 27. Now my soul is deeply troubled. He says, should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Remember who we're dealing with here. This is the most powerful being in the universe who Colossians tells us is literally holding all of creation together in his hands. And he is facing something so bad that he says his soul is deeply troubled. And he even wonders if he should ask the Father to save him from their plan. Now, he's, he's going to finish the plan. But think of how awful and how excruciating and how terrible what must lie ahead for Jesus' soul to be so deeply troubled. See, he's he's going to watch as the crowds who just moments before this cheered him on turn completely against him and reject him. All while he's suffering for them. He's going to watch as one of his closest followers will betray him all while he was suffering for him. He will watch as, as all but one of the rest of the disciples will turn their tails and flee, including Peter who will even deny knowing him three different times, all while enduring what he was for them. He will be beaten by soldiers who will challenge his authority, all the while sitting there silently enduring the beating as the greatest authority in the universe. He will listen to people mockingly suggest that he call on angels to take him off the cross if he's really the son of God, all the while, at any second, he could summon a legion of angels so great that they could wipe out the entire human race without breaking a sweat. 
And instead he endures and he suffers for even those mockers. He knows that even after he suffers, even after he dies, even through, though his death will produce a printful crop of new lives, there will be countless people who will dismiss and waste his sacrifice. People who will worship created things rather than the creator. People who will be so blinded by their sin that they cannot see the one thing that can save them. People who will devote their lives to criticizing him and denying him. And people who will kill and beat and attack and persecute his church and his followers. All trying to stop others from giving their lives to Jesus. He knows all that. And yet he painstakingly endured the cross to the point of dying even for them. So that they would just turn to him. He would heal them and forgive them and bring them into a new life. All the while knowing millions upon millions never will. You see, he endured the shame. He endured the abuse. He endured the whip. He He endured the flesh being torn off of his body. He endured that crown of thorns piercing into his skull. He endured those six-inch metal spikes being driven through the largest nerve in his body. He endured that same nail tearing through his feet and locking against the metatarsal bones. He endured his shoulders being separated. He endured the brutal process that he would have to go through even to breathe on the cross. He endured the arrhythmia that would result, and he gave up his spirit, John tells us. And just days before that, Just hours before facing that, he has one prayer. And he has one focus. And he showed it to you in verse 27. He says, Father, bring glory to your name. You see, of all the people lifting things up in John 12, of all the idols, of all the objects of worship, Jesus' sole focus was that his life would bring glory to God the Father. And so whether it was riding into town, being showered in praise, or dragging across the same city and being ridiculed and spit on heading to his execution site, or anything in between, Jesus' sole aim was to glorify God in heaven. He wanted to make much of the Father. He wanted to glorify God in all that he did. And so his father has a response. Look at the second half of verse 27. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to them. Then Jesus told them, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time for judging this world has come, and when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. See, God says, God the Father says to his son, no worries, I've already brought glory to my name, and I'm going to do it again through what you're about to endure. Because though the the coming days will be the darkest hours of all eternity, it will produce a dawn of glorious splendor. And I love the honesty of the books of the Bible, especially the Gospels, because the crowds, man, they just never get it. They don't. Jesus and the Father in this conversation, and, and Jesus tells them that this conversation is audible for your benefit, and they're still clueless. They're still coming up with their own half-brained ideas about what they're hearing. And so Jesus just kind of dismisses that and he moves on to the bigger picture. He says, now listen, the time has come to judge this world. And Satan, the prince and ruler of this world, he is going to be cast out. There's this praise song called Sing to the King 
Uh, at the end of the last verse, the last line is this, because Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king. And I, I remember distinctly an experience I had uh, in chapel in college with, with young male ministry students. Uh, and our professor gave, uh, instead of a normal class today, he just decided to give us a sermon on how Jesus defeated the kingdom of darkness for all time. And he won the war over Satan for all time. And he closed with that song. And I remember in that room getting goosebumps at the level of volume and intensity and energy that those young men shouted that line with the passion it deserves that Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king forever. You see, because from the beginning of mankind, there has been a war. A war has been waged, and the prize is the hearts and soul of mankind. And in where God and his kingdom of heaven have been offering life and truth and goodness and purpose and identity for all time. And the kingdom of darkness, being, being unable to think originally, has offered counterfeits to every good thing that God has created. All designed to rob our worship and lead us into destruction. And its leader, Satan, who is real, he is very real, has ruled with great authority in this world. Because when the Bible speaks of the world, it includes, yes, even us Christians, because the world speaks of a domain where sin has power. And the power of sin is manipulating and corrupting and ruining everything. But I want you, I'm going to turn to Colossians 1 here, and you can look at it on the screens. I want you to hear the promise we have in Colossians 1 about what God's going to do in this war and in this kingdom. Colossians 1 tells us this, for he, this is God, he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Do you understand this morning? Do you understand how big and how powerful and how meaning and how everlasting the death of Jesus Christ on the cross really is? It's actually much bigger than the kernel of wheat. It's actually greater and bigger than Jesus wanting to save our souls. His death on the cross was the great trump card, the final everlasting blow that guarantees God wins the war and the kingdom of darkness has already lost. It's just a matter of time. You see, the scriptures promise a time in which a new heaven and a new earth come down and Satan and his dominion are thrown into the eternal lake of fire and here is the picture. All of creation is reconciled to God. All of creation. No more natural disasters. No ecosystems out of balance. No storms. No food chain even. All institutions are now reconciled to God. Marriage and family, community, passion, interest, love. All these things will no longer hurt or divide but they will bring the joy they were always intended to be. All people who belong to Christ will be reconciled to God and to each other. And with the kingdom of darkness defeated and out of the picture forever, there'll be no more illness, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more separation, no more tragedy, no more suffering because their life source has been cut off forever. Because the old things have been passed away because God has made all things new. And the Bible tells us that if you are in Christ this morning, that is your inheritance, that is your guarantee, that is your future. And not because you earned it, and not because of an accident, but exclusively because Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross to cast judgment on this world and its ruler and to reconcile everything back to God. And Jesus says this, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Now remember, there are Gentiles in this crowd. 
They've come wondering about this Jesus, this guy who is praised and adored by the Jews but called the king of the Jews. And they want to know, is he, is he really a king? Is he a king just for the Jews or is he a king for all? And Jesus' response is this, when I am thrown up, when I am hoisted on that cross, I will draw all men to myself. See, if you read John's gospel, he's been preaching this all the way through. Just listen to the language. Hear these. John chapter 1, but to all who believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God. John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John 4, Jesus in Samaria, a Samaria, a place that no Jew would ever go, and he's talking to of all people a woman, and he says, anyone who drinks the water I will give him will never thirst again. It will become a well in them springing up to eternal life. John chapter 5, Jesus says, the Son of God gives life to anyone he pleases. John chapter 6, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. John chapter 7, he says, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. John chapter 8, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, and he says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheepfold, and I will go, and I will bring them in as well. John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. And then here in John 12, when I am lifted up, I will draw everyone to myself you see in Isaiah 42 God prophesied about the coming of his son when he said to the prophet I will give you to my people Israel I will give you to my people Israel as a symbol of my covenant with them but you will also be a guide to light the nations did you understand that the reason that you are here today, the reason that there are people in this room who have found life in Christ is because Jesus Christ's death paid the penalty for the sins of anyone who calls on him. His death extended the offer of life not just to the Jews, Jesus is telling this crowd, but to all nations of the earth because God is the father of all and he wants to reconcile his children back unto him. Now we could go on and on and on this morning about everything that Jesus' death accomplished, everything that it changed, everything it means. We could do this for days and still barely scratch the surface. Relax, we're not going to, all right? But thank God, okay, thank God that when Jesus talked about this, he did not leave out the response that God requires of us. He said, for Jesus died for all, yes, but his death will only pay the price for the sins of those who have surrendered their lives to him. His death is sufficient to pay the price for the sins of any man or any woman who calls on him for forgiveness, but they must respond in faith and repentance to what he has done. Did you see it in there? Did you hear it when we read it? Did you see the standard? Look back at verse 25. Right in the middle, this is what Jesus says. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. But those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now let's break this down because you will never hear anything more important than this. I'm not kidding. Your eternity hangs in the balance on the truth that Jesus delivers in these two verses. Jesus says, whoever loves their life in this world will lose it. He's talking about the life you have right now. Your temporary, limited, short life. I know we don't like to talk about it. I know we don't like to think about it. I know we don't like to plan for it. But the last time I checked, the death rate for humanity was still hovering right up there, right around the 100% mark. Okay. 
Your life on this earth will end. It will. Jesus is saying that in spite of that, or maybe even because of that, people will love their life here. And what he means by that is is that when they fall in love with their temporary, short-term life, that their heart becomes enamored by and enslaved to temporary, short-term things. And so what they worship is, is temporary, created things instead of the God who created them and who is eternal. That's what we've been looking at for the past month. What are the things that are robbing our hearts and unrightfully taking our worship? Because when our hearts are so enamored by the things of this world and the offerings of this life, we fall in love with this life. And when we fall in love with this life, we cling to it and we do not let it go. Our temporary life becomes exclusively about those temporary things we cling to. And when that happens, there is no room for an eternal Jesus Christ to come and take up residence in your heart and on your throne. And so for your love and worship of temporary things, it blocks you and blinds you from turning to God who can grant you eternal life. And due to that, Jesus says, you lose the very thing that you loved because you never gave it up and surrendered it to Christ. But then Jesus says this, those who hate their lives in this world, well, guess what? They get to keep it for all eternity. These are those who realize there's something bigger at play. Those who realize they, they cannot find their purpose, okay, for living in themselves or even in the temporary world. These are those who recognize that they were not just created to worship something, but they were created to worship the eternal, almighty, everlasting creator God. And so they are those who are willing to surrender their idolatry. They are willing to crucify their objects of worship who are not Jesus. They are willing to surrender all of themselves and all they have to the power and dominion and grace and love and authority of Jesus Christ. Because for them to gain the entire world and yet never have their soul saved by Christ would be the greatest loss of all. Patrick Henry, one of our most famous sort of founding fathers of this nation, he got this, he understood this. Listen to what he wrote at the end of his will. He wrote, I have now disposed all my property to my family, but there is one more thing that I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. Because if they had that and I had not given them a single dime, they would have been rich. And if they didn't have that and I had given them all the world, they would be poor indeed. See, whatever your heart is clinging to, whatever you are bowing to, whatever you are surrendering to, whatever is impeding your faith in and relationship with Jesus Christ, whether you haven't given him any part of you or you are still holding back, still not trusting him, still keeping certain things of your life free from his control, it is not worth it. It's not. Because that thing that you're clinging to, that thing that you hold so tightly, that thing that has so much of your heart in the end, not only will you lose it, but you will lose out on the one who can give you eternal life. And if you will see those things to what they really are, cheap, idolatrous, counterfeit, worthless gods, and you will have no regard for this life, surrendering to Jesus and letting him have his way, then you get life forever in Christ. And Jesus says, anyone who wants to be my disciple, they must follow me. They must be where I am. And my Father will honor them. You see, followers of Jesus never create these safe Christian bubbles and havens to protect themselves or their families. It's not what they do. 
No, you see, they recklessly relinquish control of their lives and they put themselves and their families at risk for his gospel, trusting ultimately that Christ is what's best for them. And they do so because they know that as his follower, they have one job, and that is to make much of Jesus Christ. In their lives and in their homes and in their careers, in their giftedness, in their resources, in their hobbies, in their worships, in their relationships, in their everything, they are to make much of Jesus, and that's it. That's the job description. They are to lift him up. They are to bring glory to his name. They are to take part in spreading his kingdom all. And while doing so, they are to give no regard for their own protection or the well-being of their own limited time here on earth. Because he is on the throne. See, we're coming to the close of this series, but the application and call of these scriptures, the application and call of the word of God is just beginning. It's just starting. If you're in this room today and you have not responded in faith to Jesus Christ, if you have never surrendered your life to him, if you've never asked him to forgive your sins and take control, then you are clinging to your life here. And you will lose it, and when you do, you will lose everything. And our prayer today is that that would not remain the case. Our prayer is that God's spirit will convict you in a mighty and powerful way and reveal to you the truth of Jesus Christ. That the scales would fall from your eyes and you'd be given a new heart and that you would respond in this room on this day, surrendering your life to the one who suffered and died in order to offer you life forever in heaven with him. And if you're in this room today and to this point in your life, you have always assumed that you are in Christ because you grew up in church and you memorized some scriptures and you can dress and act the part but God has been pointing his finger on the truth in your life that you have not surrendered your life to Jesus at all you are still calling the shots there's something else that still has your heart and for the longest time maybe you've believed a lie That Jesus could be kind of like a hat that fits nicely on the foundation of life that you've already built for yourself. What's our prayer today? That God would remind you that Jesus wants it all or nothing. You cannot serve two masters, he says. You cannot bring your spiritual resume to Christ. You will bow now or you will bow later. Only then it will be too late. So stop relying on your own idea of Christianity. Stop banking on your church record. Stop riding the wave of your own morality and give Jesus the throne. Not only because it's where he belongs, because it's the only thing he'll accept. And for those of us, you see, those of us who have him, those of us who have been called and saved by his glorious redemptive grace, we have one job. Let's not make it too complicated. We have one job. We are to make much of Jesus Christ. In one accord, with one voice, with one purpose, we are to lift him up in this ministry and in our lives and in our homes and in our families. What a shame. What a shame that for the great and glorious display in Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday, what a shame that even through that, Jesus wasn't really given his due. He wasn't really worshipped. He wasn't really bowed to. Their hearts were not surrendered to him. Well, not today. 
Not today, not here, not in this place, because may he find in us, in this little post in North Terre Haute, this little blip on the map, may he find hearts that are bowed to his. May he discover worship that is designed only and focused exclusively on him. May he find a body full of people who know that they're calling Their glorious purpose for existence is to make much of Jesus, enjoying his fullness and reign in their lives and in their families and sharing him with the world who needs that purpose of will. Will he find that today? Will he find that as we close, as we sing, as we, as, as, will he discover that kind of worship in this room and in your heart? Will he see hearts surrendering to him? Will he see a church on mission tonight sharing him in devoted worship to this community? Will he find a home on the throne in this place and in your life? Is he going to find that today? Because that's what he's seeking. That's what he died for. And that is the only thing that he will accept. So may he find it here. 2,000 years ago, Palm Sunday was a joke. May it not be here. Let's pray. Father, there are no words to describe how worthy your son is. Our language is too limited to describe the level of devotion his life and his cost and his sacrifice demand. But God, we can put it as simply as this. You want all of us or you want nothing. So God, for those who have not called on you today, we pray that your spirit would move and they would do that. They would surrender their lives to you and your hope and your cross and your grace and your gospel. They would understand that their purpose for existence is not in themselves, but it is to find you. God, for those in our midst who maybe they've been coming to this church their entire lives, who are banking on their own understanding of God or their own morality, but they have not surrendered their hearts to you. You are not in authority in their lives, God. May they stop believing the lie that they belong to you. And may they see the standard that your son set and give themselves wholly to him. And for those of us you have saved, those of us that you have called out from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your dear son, Lord, may we worship and exalt and uplift Christ in all that we do. May we make much of Christ in this moment, in this service, in our lives tonight and in the days and weeks and months and years to come. May we embrace our role and our identity that we are to make much of him in everything. It is not about us. It is not about our safety. It is not about our stuff. It is not about our comfort. It is not about our security. It is all about him. Do that work in this place and in our hearts. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, we want you to...